You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. When I was in college, more than 25 years ago, I uh, met somebody who's like Noel, who asked, uh, who told me, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Really? And this is a thought-provoking idea to me at that age. And college is a time when you raise questions like that. Uh, a year ago, on Friday night, November 11th, November 5th, 2011, a young man, a college student, a freshman, sat in his fraternity house. He uh, sat down on the couch with his cell phone on the coffee table, getting ready to watch a football game. University of Tennessee, the Volunteers. And as he was getting ready to do that and digging into some snacks, uh, the phone rang. It was the coach of the football team. Apparently what had happened was, uh, um, just an hour before the game, the kicker for the, uh, the volunteers was stretching and he pulled his leg. He pulled a muscle on his leg. And they did not have a kicker because on Thursday the backup kicker had uh, been injured. And so the coach was thinking, what do we do? What do we do? Well, he remembered that there had been a freshman who earlier that year had tried out for the team, who had been rejected, didn't make the team, and his name was Derek Brodus. And so Derek gets the phone call from the coach saying, uh, where are you, Derek? We're sending a, a, a police car over right now to give you an escort uh, to the stadium. You're on the team. <laughs> and Derek went out there. And uh, he warmed up a little bit. Uh, the uh, team scored three touchdowns. He nailed every single one of the extra points, and he got a three-point, uh, what do they call that, field goal. <laughs> and the team won. The volunteers won 24 to nothing. Now, if you're Matthew, Matthew Broderick, do you, could you not believe that God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life? <laughs> Such a surprising turn of events raised that question for us. Um, but we all ask questions in our lives about uh, our plans. And we all have to make decisions. And I think the question is, you know, if God has a plan for my life, how do I find that plan? How do I discover it? The Lord says to us in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with a hope. No matter what you and I are facing today, no matter what the crossroads of our life looks like, the good news is that you have a God who loves you and who has a plan for your future to give you hope. But the question is, how do we find that plan? How do we discover what this future is? How can we be people who have the hope that God wants to give us? Well, one of the best places to turn that I know of for practical, real-world wisdom is the book of Proverbs. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Proverbs together. So I would invite you to open up your Bible if you brought one or the, the uh, Bible in the pew rack in front of you and turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking, you find that on page 509, by the way. And this morning we'll, we'll be thinking about the whole of chapter 1, but I want to invite you, if you're able to stand with me and read uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 aloud together. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For learning about wisdom and instruction, 
for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, you are the wisdom of God. It looks foolish to the world, a God who would come and give his life on a cross. But it is the wisdom of our lives, and so we attend to you now. So speak and be the word of God for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you uh, this morning a reflection on uh, the choices that we make from this text. I want to talk about the nature and the means and the motivation for God's plan. And this is sort of an introduction to the book of Proverbs in a way, and I want you to understand uh, by the end of our conversation something about stewardship, something about wisdom, and something about the fear of the Lord, as we just read. So let's begin with the nature of God's plan. What is it? When God says he has a plan for you, what is this plan? What's it like? Well, if I had to give it to you in one word, I would use the word stewardship. Stewardship. And I want to suggest to you that stewardship is truly a royal calling. Here's my definition, just to start off with, of stewardship. A steward is someone who manages the resources of another. A steward is someone who manages the resources of another. Why do I suggest that God's plan is, at its core, a plan for stewardship? Well, first of all, the book of Proverbs suggests that to me. Why? Well, scholars tell us that the book of Proverbs uh, emerges from the court. It was written for royalty, for the kings and the, uh, the royal officers of ancient Israel. You, you notice, as you read this book, it's in five sections. There are five collections of Proverbs, and each of them is bundled under the name uh, of either Solomon, which is sections one and two, the men of Hezekiah, Agur and Lemuel, uh, Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, Solomon and uh, Hezekiah, both kings of Israel. Agor and Lemuel, we don't know as much about, but we think they're probably court officials. When the next generation was going to uh, rise to power, leadership and influence in ancient Israel, these proverbs, which were written originally for the court, um, had a, a particular relevance. H- how would the kings of Israel rule? Uh, what kind of rulers would they be? And there are two things that come out. First of all, they're not to be owners. The ancient kings of Israel did not own the nation, and they uh, were to, to rule in the interest of somebody else. Uh, let me show you that. Uh, the, the owners, uh, uh, the, the kings of ancient Israel, were owners of their uh, countries. They fancied themselves, in many cases, not just to be representatives of God, but to be God himself or one of the gods 
And when Israel requests to have a king, you remember, if you know the story, um, God is disappointed. Not that they would have a king, but for their motive. They said, we want to have a king like all the other nations. God knew one day Israel would have a king, but uh, he didn't want the king of Israel to be like the kings of other nations. And he warns Israel, he said, if you have a king like the king of other nations, then that king will amass great wealth. He'll assume that everything belongs to him. Uh, he will uh, enslave your men and women. Your sons and daughters will be sent into slavery. Your sons will be offered in military battle at the altar of the king's ego and reputation and power. But not so for the kings of Israel. Uh, you, you will not own this nation because these are my people, God says, and I am your king. They're not to be owners and they're uh, to, to rule in someone else's interest. If you notice here in verse 3, uh, the, the Proverbs are written uh, for the gaining of ins- instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. And we won't take time to look at each of these individual words. The important thing is to know these are really important words in the Bible. Justice, righteousness, and equity. Uh, these words, um, as the NIV translates them, that which is right and just and fair. These words are important because they're attributes of God. These are his uh, characteristics. God himself is righteous and just and equity and, and fair. And so uh, the Proverbs are written so that the royal youth of Israel would learn these character qualities, would uh, incorporate them into their character and would be able to rule on behalf of God, so that when they did their work in Israel, they made visible the character of God to Israel and all the world. This is what a steward is. is. A steward is somebody, as I say, who manages somebody else's resources. And implicit in that, there are two things. One is a steward's not the owner, and a steward uh, um, exercises or manages uh, for the respons- in the interests of somebody else. Now, we know we don't have kings uh, in America or in our culture anymore, um, but we do talk about stewardship, don't we? We oftentimes talk about environmental stewardship. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean uh, these same two things, that the world, this planet, actually does not belong to us. Environmental stewardship doesn't belong to us. And uh, we have the responsibility and the privilege of managing uh, cultivating, protecting, nurturing this planet for the interests of others. Other people who live in our day, other species who live, and other people and species who will follow us. We have to put their interests ahead of our own if we're going to be in, uh, stewards of this planet, environmental stewardship. So it's the same thing for us. Uh, even though we're not kings, stewardship is the paradigm that the whole Bible uses to talk about the decisions and the choices that you and I make. In Genesis 1 and 2, its, it's main point is to teach that uh, all of creation, this good thing, belongs to God. And then he says, let me put you in creation, in my image, to rule over it, to exercise dominion, to be vice-regents with me, to manifest my goodness to all this creation. And that's the way the Bible begins. And in the middle, we have a witness to Jesus Christ who, as you know, tells parables about a king who goes away and he leaves talents behind for his managers to, 
to, uh, to invest and to gain a return so that when he comes back, uh, there's more to share. That's a stewardship parable. And then we read in Peter in the New Testament, uh, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another. That's First Peter 4.10. So stewardship is our calling. And just like you didn't have to be a royalty in ancient Israel to benefit from the book of Proverbs, we too, we can listen in on the conversation as all of Israel once listened in on this conversation of the elites. Um, or it would not have been preserved or valued um, throughout the generations. So uh, it's for us as well. We're stewards. We have a royal calling. I like what Ron Blue uh, says about stewardship. It's the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. So just pause for a minute and ask yourself, what do I have? What has God given me in my life that really belongs to Him for my management? Do I have education? Do I have financial means? Do I have a network of relationships? Do I have uh, creativity? Do I have a story of pain or addiction or recovery from disease? Do I have compassion? Do I have time? Whatever it is that you have is a resource that belongs to God that he has entrusted to you for uh, your management so that you could manage in his interest so that what is right, just, and fair could emerge and become visible in this creation. So that's the nature of God's plan. God has a plan for your life, and he plans to make you his steward. Second, let's talk about the means of God's plan. When I was in college, we used to do these crazy outreach things, and one time I took a group of students down to Daytona Beach, Florida, from New England for spring break, and it's absolutely chaotic. Uh, it's fraternity life on steroids. And uh, we were walking on the beach one time, and we saw a, a beer can, uh, which wouldn't be a surprise in Daytona, but this beer can was five stories high. It was this huge inflatable beer can. We, it obviously attracted our attention, and uh, you could just see students like flies gathering around this. And at the base of it, they had an enclosure. And we asked them, what are you doing here? And they said, well, first have some free beer. Free beer? You're kidding me. How could you give away free beer in Daytona Beach? And uh, they said, well, we've done this research. And our studies show that the decisions you make between the ages of 18 and 22 become the decisions that you'll stick with for the rest of your life. Your decisions at that form of time um, begin to establish the formation of a character in a life. As someone has said, throw, sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow uh, a character, reap a destiny. A woman said, you know, I've um, finally figured out how to get my husband to stop biting his nails. Drove me nuts. And she said, really? Yeah, after all these years. How have you done it? Well, I hide his teeth. Um, <laughs> These habits build up, and the decisions that you make early in life, they actually become a plan that your life will fulfill whether you want it or not. So now imagine for a second with me that you're a young man. Imagine you're a man and that you're young. I know this is difficult for some of us. And that you're walking with your father through um, an ancient village in Palestine. You're running some kind of an errand, and you're walking along the dusty trail. And uh, you see stucco houses and people around, and you don't really know where you're going, and you come to an intersection. 
And at that intersection, you're watching people going to the right and to the left and crossing through and you stop. And you look at your father and you ask your father, which way do we go? And he looks at you and he's not going to tell you. He's not going to tell you which fork in the road to take, but he is going to tell you how to be the kind of person who can make a good choice at just such an intersection. That's really what the book of Proverbs offers us. It asks you to enter into the thought world of someone else. It actually asks you to enter into the conversation between a father and a son. And I know, you know, um, many of us have trouble picturing us, ourselves as male. But I, and, and there is a male orientation to the book of Proverbs. But I want to say something about that. If you look here, if your Bible is open to verse 8, notice this. The writer says, Hear my child your father's instruction and do not reject your mother's teaching. The writer understands that this is about men and women. This is about authoritative parents and authoritative um, fathers and authoritative mothers as well who teach. And, and so it's for men and women. And in ancient Israel, the Israelites didn't have a hard time flipping around uh, specific instruction that was given to one gender and, and making the conversion and understanding what it means for the other gender. So we'll have to do a little bit of that. But we'll also have to imagine ourselves on a journey. Because the book of Proverbs is about the way and walking and the path. You'll see that kind of imagery. And so take yourself back to this intersection. And there you stand with your father and you look up these two roads. And you don't know how to make the choice. And your father will say, well, wait a minute. Um, let me point out two figures to you. And he's going to introduce two characters that are the characters of Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. Where most of our primary texts will come from. Your father says, look up to the right. Look up there. Uh, do you see a, a woman in a doorway? That woman is woman wisdom, he calls her. And you read her in verse 20. The father introduces you to, wisdom cries out in the street, in the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, at intersections like this, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. And here's what she says. We hear woman wisdom. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts. The Hebrew word there is spirit. To you, I will make my words known to you. And later on, we read of a woman wisdom in chapter 9, verse 5. She says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. And your father says, so if you follow what she tells you, my son, you will find God's plan for your life. But, and he says, now I want you to look over here. And he, and he signifies the other direction. Look up high. Look at that window. Do you see that very stylishly dressed woman? Isn't she so attractive? Her name is Wisdom Folly. And she will speak also in, for example, in chapter 9, verse 6, we'll read, she sits at the door of her house. On a seat at the high places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way, quote, you who are simple, turn in here. And to those without sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But they do not know, the father says, that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Why use this uh, imagery in the book of Proverbs? Well, remember, if, if this is for the youth, for the young men, particularly of Israel, to prepare for uh, their royal calling, think about these um, 
uh, adolescent boys, very hormonal, and uh, what would attract them? Women calling from windows, trying to get your attention. And the point here is that when we think about God's plan and the choices that we have to make, there is competition for our attention out there. Stewardship ain't the only option. And maybe you've noticed that we have a lot of consumption in our culture. Consumerism. There is no time in history, there's no culture that has ever been better at understanding itself in consumeristic terms than ours has. We're the most marketed to generation in the history of the world. And, and, and stewardship and consumption are opposites. Remember, a steward is someone who says, it doesn't belong to me and I manage it for somebody else's interest. A consumer is somebody who says, this uh, absolutely is mine. And, and the goal is that it would satisfy me. And I manage my resources so that I can get more, can consume more. Remember Solomon. Solomon, who writes two sections of this book of Proverbs, was uh, a young man when he came to the throne. And God came to him in a dream just as Solomon arose to power. And, and God said to Solomon, ask what I should give you. And here's what Solomon said. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? He asked for wisdom, and he knew that his task was to rule something, someone who did not belong to him. And listen to God's reaction. Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions or wealth or honor or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I will also, check this, I will also give you riches, possession, honor, such as none of the kings who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. See, when, when God finds someone who's willing to see their lives as stewards, notice, he gives them the wisdom they need to make the choices. They need to fulfill that mission. And when he finds someone he can trust to be a steward, he can give them more and more in abundance to manage because they manage in his interest. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is, and here's my definition of wisdom, truth applied to life. It's not intelligence. It's not education. I know a lot of brilliant people, high IQs, who have many degrees who can't find a doorknob on the door. Wisdom is the skill for living. Applying truth, God's truth, uh, to life. It's an internal capacity so that when you and I come to the, fork, the forks in the path, we can choose as God would choose if he himself were at that same intersection. We make God's decisions with God's resources. And God will give that to you as a steward. God has a plan for your life and he plans to give you his wisdom so that you can be his steward. Three, the final thing, the motivation for God's plan. Uh, I had been out of college, I have been out of college, as I say, for more than 25 years, and I'm quite sure that I am uh, on um, plan B. Uh, if God has a wonderful plan for my life, this is B or C, or if I'm really honest with you, this is probably plan J. And life kind of works that way, doesn't it? I mean, you find yourself in this place where I just never thought it would work out this way. I definitely didn't want it to work out this way, as one woman said this week. 
I found out that uh, for 16 years I'd been married to the wrong man. She's going through a very painful uh, divorce. And that's kind of the way we are. When we find ourselves in that place, we oftentimes lack motivation. We go, oh, can I really believe again? Is it worth getting out of bed and trying something new? Life it kind of just is what it is, isn't it? No, it's not. Verse 20 makes it clear that wisdom is always available. In the bustling uh, square, in the busiest corner, from the height of the wall, wisdom calls for, to all people at every point in their life. And wisdom offers us a new beginning. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can always start in wisdom. You hear that verse a lot. It comes several times through the wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. What does it mean? Does it mean uh, I'm afraid of God? You see, I knew it. The Bible just validated the way I feel about God, that he's out to get me, that he wants to punish me, that he wants to um, put me where I deserve to go. No. That's the one thing that fear of the Lord cannot mean. Because God, the scriptures tell us, is perfect love, and perfect love casts out fear. Jesus, when he was born, we just read this in Advent, every time the angels show up, they say, fear not. Jesus himself commands us to be anxious for nothing. No, it doesn't mean to be afraid of God. Well, then what does it mean? Bruce Walke, one of the experts on the book of Proverbs, uh, says you have to take that as a whole phrase, almost as though it were a technical term. You can't know what it means by taking it apart any more than you can know what a butterfly is by meditating on butter and fly. Uh, or you can't understand what water is by thinking about hydrogen and oxygen a really long time. You've just got to take them together. And fear of the Lord is a stock phrase that gets used again and again as a complete phrase in the Bible. What does the phrase mean? Well, um, if you put it next to other phrases, you find out this. It's oftentimes in parallel with the love of the Lord, the love of God. For example, if you want to look that up later, Deuteronomy 5.29 and 6.2, you'll see those phrases explain each other. And when you look at that phrase in context, you'll see it's elaborated upon in several places. For example, in uh, Psalm 111, uh, it, it, this psalm ends with the climax, fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. But if you look at the psalm and read what it comes before, it's, the psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Great are the works of the Lord. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's ever mindful of his covenant. He sent redemption to his people. And then the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an astonishment at who God is and the workings of his grace in human history. Even more powerful, I think, Psalm 130, verse 4. In the NIV, it says, But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. When we know God has truly forgiven us, there's a response in the human heart that says, This is astonishing. That's the fear of the Lord. Karl Barth says, For we discover, when we discover the fear of the Lord, that God, since the beginning of time, has not hated or threatened you and me, but has loved and chosen us, He's made a covenant with us, has been our helper long before we knew it, and will continue this relationship. The fear of the Lord springs from the discovery that the high and eternal God gave his beloved son for us, for you, for me, taking upon himself our sin and our misery. He made his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be our brother, for whose sake we may call God our father and ourselves his children. The fear of the Lord springs from the discovery that I did not merit this gift, that it has been given to me by the pure and free goodness of God in spite of all I deserve. The fear of the Lord springs from the discovery that this is the true relationship between God and me, that I had totally ignored it, 
that I had perhaps heard it once from afar, only to forget it again and to live as if it were not true and none of my concern. The fear of the Lord springs from the discovery that it might be high time to awake from sleep, to arise and live as the men and women we really are, God's elect and chosen people, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, set free by Him from our sin and our misery. The fear of the Lord springs from the discovery that God calls us unto Himself and that His calling urges us to wake up, to arise, and to begin to live as His children. It is inspired with secret jubilation and is born of gratitude. This is our motivation, that we can begin again. And in Christ, we can succeed because he is with us and for us. Where do you stand today? I'm at an intersection. You're at an intersection. We all have choices to make. I wonder how those choices and decisions begin to look different when you realize everything in that situation belongs to God. I wonder how those choices begin to look different when you ask yourself, God, what are your interests in this situation? Jesus Christ ultimately is the wisdom of God. With him, we always stand at a crossroads between what has been and what can be. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Let's pray. God, you're such a great God. I thank you for your grace that releases us from all fears and inspires us to enter into the royal calling that we are vice regents in this good creation sent by you to give witness to your love and to live with hope and to share hope. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.